Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Today's show is sponsored by Audible, the home of over 150,000 audiobooks. To get a free, yes, free audiobook, go to audibletrial.com forward slash queens and go find yourself something awesome to listen to today. This week I'm going to recommend King John, Treachery, Tyranny and the Road to Magna Carta by Mark Morris. Now I'll admit that I don't know much about this one, but it has been very well reviewed and it is the only book on King John that is currently on Audible. And it's free! when you sign up for a free trial membership at audibletrial.com forward slash queens. And better yet, by doing so, you'll be showing your support for the Queens of England podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 12, Isabel of Angoulême. Isabel, or Jezebel. To start with this week, we need again to backtrack a little bit and look back at the early life of King John before his marriage to Isabel of Angoulême. So the year is 1183. Eleanor was ten years into her period of captivity, Henry the Young King had just died, and Henry II was desperate to find something for his favourite son John to rule over. If you pull your minds back to episode 9, a major source of confrontation between the king and his sons was over this question of John's inheritance. Indeed, it can be argued that it was the reason behind pretty much every conflict that Henry had had with his sons after the imprisonment of Eleanor. With his heir dead, Henry tried to reshuffle the realm by getting Richard to give up his inheritance in Aquitaine in favour of John, and Richard would be the new heir to the throne. Richard liked the being the heir part of the deal, but refused to give John anything. This led to yet another civil war, which lasted for a year. So, what could Henry give his whiny, ambitious son? Well, he sent him to Ireland. Now, if you think I'm getting into the complexities of Irish history, then you're crazy. So suffice it to say that Henry was getting involved in a dispute between the various regional kings of Ireland in order to carve out some land for his son John and gain a foothold on the island for the Angevins. This had been going on since the 1170s and so far had managed to seize the Kingdom of Leinster for England, which acted as a springboard for further raiding. John, aged just 10, had been made Lord of Ireland in 1177, but in 1185, Henry tried to go one step further and sent his teenage son to Ireland with the news that he was now to be known as King of Ireland, though such titles had to be approved by the Pope, and the Pope was having none of it. If you think that John's period of rule in Ireland was going to be a success, 
Well, you just don't know John. He gathered the Irish nobles together and promptly insulted them all by making fun of their long, bushy beards, a fashion that was common in Ireland but was considered ridiculous by the Normans, who thought it was a sign of barbarism. His fortunes, shockingly enough, soon collapsed, and he was forced to return to England only a year later in disgrace. So, yet another attempt to carve out an inheritance had failed, and so John was made to wait a little while longer. He got his next chance when his brother Richard became king in 1185. If you remember, Richard had announced his intention to go on crusade, and so was anxious to butter his brother up in the vain hope of keeping him quiet. He made him Count of Mortain, and later that year John was married to Isabella of Gloucester, a match that had been planned by Henry II back in 1177. Isabella was the heiress of the earldom of Gloucester, and she could trace her line back through to Henry I through his bastard son Robert of Gloucester, you know, the man who was the general of the Empress Matilda's armies during the anarchy. Now, if you're thinking, wait a second, doesn't that make them really closely related? Well, yes. Yes, it did. They were half-second cousins. Not a problem legally today, but a big problem for the church, and particularly for the Archbishop of Canterbury, but he died too soon before he could get the Pope to place him under interdict. John and Isabella were married for ten years, but they were unable to produce an heir, and very soon John started to look elsewhere, as he had his eyes on a more lucrative prize. Historians have claimed that he started looking for a new match as soon as 1196, but the final nail in the coffin of his first marriage was not in fact a nail, but a crossbow bolt. In 1199, Richard the Lionheart was killed by a crossbowman while besieging a French castle, and John became King of England. Right now, having a supposedly barren Anglo-Norman noblewoman as his wife would not do. He needed someone grander, someone richer. He convened a council of bishops and got them to agree to annul his marriage on the grounds of consanguinity. Being the classy guy that he was, he didn't give the lands controlled by the Earldom of Gloucester back to Isabella. Indeed, he went as far as to imprison his former wife so that she wouldn't remarry and threaten to take away his lands. She would only be released in 1214 during the height of John's trouble during the Barons' Wars, but now I'm getting ahead of myself. Basically, John was as crappy a husband as he had been a son and a brother. I think by now there should have been a message loud and clear. Don't marry an Angevin, they are all super mean to their wives. Technically, Isabella had been Queen of England for a couple of months, but she was never recognised as such, due to the proceedings against her, which is why she hasn't got her own episode. So, who is next into the breach? Well, annoyingly to your humble podcaster, kings keep choosing wives with the same names. First we had the plethora of Matildas, we're about to get hit by yet more Eleanors in the next two episodes, and right now we're about to get hit by another Isabella. For the sake of avoiding confusion though, I'm going to call her Isabel, as this is the name she is often portrayed as having, given the fact that she was French. And believe me, she is going to figure much, much more in the affairs of the kingdom than her predecessor had done. Isabel of Angoulême was born in around 1188 to Aimer of Angoulême and his wife Alice of Courtenay. Her mother was a cousin of Philip Augustus, the current king of the French, which gave Isabel good noble pedigree. Angoulême was technically under the purview of the Duchy of Aquitaine, but Aimer had sided with Philip during Richard's numerous conflicts with the French king, and in 1199 he signed a formal alliance with him and planned to marry Isabel off to Hugh IX of Lusignan, a noble from Poitou who had just been recognised by John as Count of La Marche. Isabel was at most 12. Hugh was more like 35, but more on that later. This was a big threat to John, as a combined La Marche, Angoulême and Lusignan territory would be the equal of Aquitaine, and therefore a massive threat to all his lands in France. 
So, what would John do to sort this mess out? Would he use his years of experience to negotiate a settlement? Would he attempt to buy Hugh off and turn an enemy into a friend? No, of course not. This is John we're talking about. To prevent the marriage of Isabel to Hugh of Lusignan, he instead decided to marry her himself instead. Bold move, John. Now, at that point, John was in negotiations to marry a Portuguese princess, a plan that would help him secure his southern flank, but he cared not for that. He thought he had just come up with the most ingenious plan in history. Needless to say, this move was not universally popular. Ralph of Diceto writes, quote, Lord John, King of England, having in mind to marry a daughter of the King of the Portuguese, sent from Rouen some great nobles to bring her back to him. But he married Isabel, only daughter and heir to Count of Angoulême, and he did this while they were on a journey, without having warned them, taking much less care for their safety than was worthy of his majesty. Historian Frank McLean sums up the problems with this match thusly. Quote, Almost everything about John's union with Isabel has invited controversy. His motives, the murky circumstances of his engagement, the status of the marriage in canon law, the personality of the new queen, and the reasons for the excessive wrath of the Lusignans. So, let's go through McLean's points one by one, as they really get to the heart of what this episode will be about. Firstly, the motives. While there is a possible argument to say that marrying Isabel did make some sense territorially, most chroniclers state that John's reasons were far more base. Now, it's fair to say that John is pretty unpopular in the sources, not all of it entirely justified, but it does seem that he was more than usually influenced by the prospect of sex than was normal, even for the time. I will remind you that Isabel was around the age of 12 then, but she was considered a great beauty, or at least a girl with the prospect of becoming a great beauty. John was notorious for having multitudes of mistresses before and after marriage, and, as we'll see, he was capable of acting in an enormously unroyal way if he let his inner horn dog get the better of him. Of course, he is the son of Henry II and the great-grandson of Henry I, two men notorious for their sexual appetites, but John's actions, as we will see, were far less discreet than those of his forebears. It's fair to say that most chroniclers say the reason he wanted to marry Isabel was mostly down to her looks, which again was not considered a very royal thing to do. Second on McLean's list was the murky circumstances of the engagement. Needless to say, John did not want Hugh of Lusignan to know that he was planning on stealing his bride, so the negotiations were undertaken in the utmost secrecy and at lightning pace. It was not unusual for marriages like this to be in the planning for months, even years, the time between the opening of negotiations and the two meeting at the altar was less than two months. But of course, most people had no idea that anything was happening until they were pretty much told to turn up at the church. Third, we have the position in canon law. The main problem here is that John was not officially divorced from Isabella of Gloucester. John more or less decided that he was divorcing his wife and chased after Isabel. Now, if you recall the divorce of Eleanor of Aquitaine and Louis, there was a whole thing with not just council of bishops, but lots of legal stuff before they obtained their annulment. There was a formal process to all of this, and John had ridden roughshod over it all. Some have suggested that there may have been a question also over age. I have given her age as around 12, as that is the broad consensus, but some have said she might have been as young as 9. Now, 12 was the given legal minimum age for marriage, so anything under that would have been considered highly inappropriate and illegal, and there is some evidence to suggest that she may have been younger. The fact that she was given as 12 may have just been a fabrication to excuse the marriage. I'm going to talk about Isabel's personality a little later, but finally I want to talk about McLean's final point, the Lusignans. 
This was a noble family who a few decades before had been kings of Jerusalem. They were a family of high pedigree and were furious at this flagrant slap in the face. The betrothal between Hugh and Isabel had already taken place and they had exchanged what are known as the Verba de Presenti. This was given to mean that the two had entered into an agreement to marry in the near future, which suggests that she had not yet reached the legal marriage age. It was a verbal contract held under a man's honour, and so in many people's eyes, they were already married. Historian Nicholas Vincent writes, quote, The suspicion remains that Isabel was a prepubescent child in 1200, and that the king stepped in where Isabel's betrothed husband believed it to be indecent to tread. The Lusignans, as we will see, did not take this lying down. In order to give this distinctly dodgy marriage a little bit of legitimacy, John quickly organised a big fancy coronation in England, which was attended by every notable person in the land, from the clergy and nobility. Now, of course, under different circumstances, this would have been a decent match. Isabel came from a wealthy family who owned important strategic lands that she was the sole heir of, and had real royal pedigree. That much wasn't in doubt, it's the fact that she was a preteen, kind of sort of married to someone else, and, oh, 12 years old at best. So, before we get into the ramifications of this marriage, let's talk a little bit about who this girl, and I think that's what we have to call her, was. We don't have any reliable description of her physical appearance, but once she had grown up a little, she was indeed considered a great beauty. Some indeed even called her the French Helen of Troy, and as we have said, she came from good noble stock. In terms of personality, though, she does not come across at all well in the sources. Indeed, much like his father had done, John seems to have married a woman with a little too similar a temperament to his own. Now, once again, we have to be careful with the sources which hate John more than the plague, but she is described as having been vain, arrogant, and haughty, which are the traditional adjectives given to describe bad queens. Perhaps her reason for her vanity and haughtiness was her frustration at the fact that she was not given much power. England was entering into a period of war and internal strife at a level that had not been seen since the anarchy, but unlike then, when King Stephen had used his wife Matilda of Boulogne as a cog in his machine, I would say THE vital cog in his governmental machine, John did not use his wife at all. At first, the reason for this is clearly her age, but even years later, it is clear that John had no intention of sharing any power with his wife. It was just not the role that he envisioned for her. So, as I have been hinting at, John's hijacking of Isabel from Hugh of Lusignan caused a rebellion led by Hugh and supported by his liege lord, the French king Philip Augustus. Philip declared that all the lands that John held in France were hereby forfeit, which amounted to a full-on declaration of war. While John presided over the catastrophe that was his attempt to defend his French land. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Isabel went to stay with her mother in Angoulême, her father having died the year before, and ruled the county until 1204, whereupon John took the title from her. She did not escape the upheaval of war, and indeed was briefly besieged in the fortress of Chinon in February 1203, before being rescued by a passing band of mercenaries. It is said that John paid more attention to this victory than any other engagement his forces fought in, which essentially amounted to a charge that John cared more about his bedchamber than the battlefield. As I've said, the war was a disaster. Normandy, the ancestral home of John's entire royal house going back four centuries, was largely taken by Philip in 1204. I won't go into detail on this campaign as it doesn't really concern our story, and is a matter of fierce controversy between those who place the blame squarely on John and others who claim that macro-historical and economic factors made it inevitable. For the people at the time, though, they placed the blame squarely on the shoulders of the king. One, re- one, factor, be- one factor behind the ferocity of the rebellion had been the treatment of Berengaria, Richard's widow, who had been cheated out of much of her inheritance by John, who had given the lands to Isabel. This led to the Dowager Queen switching sides to supporting Philip, which was a huge boon to the French king. So you would have thought that at least Isabel would have benefited from these stolen lands, right? Wrong. While the lands were transferred to her, John kept all the rental money, and spent it reportedly on jewels and clothes and other luxuries for himself. What a guy. Now, of course, one might argue in the early days this was treating her like a child because, well, she was a child. But this is not something that stopped once she fully gained her majority. And then John had another bright idea. He didn't want to pay for the Queen to have her own household. No, that'd be way too expensive. She should instead go stay with his ex-wife, Isabella of Gloucester. I am not making this stuff up. But surely it can't get more humiliating. Well, yes it can. Another place where she made her residence was in Marlborough, at the home of Hugh Neville, whose wife was one of John's mistresses. Again, what a guy. Now, this is not to say that John did not pay his wife considerable attention in the bedchamber, as Isabel turned out to be as productive a mother of heirs as a king could want. In 1207, she gave birth to a son called Henry, because the Angevins had no imagination, and he was soon followed by a spare, called Richard, 18 months later, and then three girls. Joanna, who would later become Queen of Scots, Isabella, who would become a Holy Roman Empress, and Eleanor, who would later marry the son of the man who would act as regent for her brother Henry. So in terms of securing the future of the kingdom, she had done her bit, even if her husband was busy squandering his inheritance. These children were born fairly close together, which suggests that John and Isabel did have a functional relationship, but there is a suspicion that they were not at all close. Now John was notorious for his affairs, indeed sleeping with many of the wives of his nobility, something that didn't exactly endear them to him, but kings were allowed to do this sort of thing. But one thing that is frequently used against Isabel, especially by the chronicler Matthew Paris, were accusations of adultery on her part. There was a rumour that she had an incestuous affair with her half-brother, though that seems to have had no substance, but rumours of her bedding courtiers and visiting foreigners persisted. 
Matthew Paris, who was no friend of the royal couple, called her, quote, more Jezebel than Isabel, and went on to write the following, quote, she has often been guilty of incest, witchcraft, and adultery, so that the king, her husband, has ordered those of her lovers who have been apprehended to be strangled with a rope in her own bed. Again, this seems to have been a wild exaggeration, but such things often have a measure of truth about them, and there is a suggestion that she may have been under house arrest in a period during the 1210s, possibly as a punishment for some sexual misdemeanour, but also, possibly, for an altogether pettier reason. In 1214, John lost the Battle of Bovine, which completely confirmed the fall of Normandy to France, and John seems to have placed the blame for this hutter humiliation on his wife. He blamed her for forcing him into a marriage that caused the war, he blamed her for her foreignness, some have said that he blamed her for witchcraft, and that her adulterous affairs had somehow drained the king's, and by extension England's, virility. We can all see what's being done here. Isabel was a scapegoat for a deluded king, but it does point to something interesting about queenship. I have talked a few times about the fact that queens only held power at the behest of her husband, but this was also true for her reputation. In many ways, a queen was at her husband's mercy, and if he decided to throw her under the proverbial ox cart, then he could do so. Her possible captivity could explain why she appears so very little in the contemporary source record, meaning that she played pretty much no role in the final collapse of John's rule, which I relate to you very quickly. After returning from France, he was forced by his nobles to sign the Magna Carta, which essentially amounted to them settling abuses of the king's power and then grabbing that power from him. Once he had escaped their custody, he refused to abide by it, but the barons said, sorry, no backsies, which led to the barons' wars. Then Wales went into revolt, Scotland invaded, as the French, whose heir to the throne, Louis, was invited to take the throne from John by his own nobles, he fought an incredibly violent campaign that ravaged the countryside, killing a ton of ordinary people, lost the crown jewels in the swamp, before promptly dying of dysentery in 1216. Sorry if you wanted more detail, but this is a podcast about queens, not kings. So, Isabel was a widow and a dowager queen. She was in Bristol when she, he- when she heard the news of her husband's death, and so rushed with her nine-year-old son Henry to London, and saw him crowned King Henry III. Now, of course, Henry would not get the full powers of kingship for a little while, so a regency council was set up to guide him. But they had no interest in including Isabel, who, let's not forget, was still in her twenties. Someone like Eleanor of Aquitaine would have forced her way in, but Isabel was too unpopular and did not have much interest in her adopted country. Her children were placed into the custody of important men, with the exception of Joanna, and she returned with her to Angoulême. Isabel's experience as a queen had been one of utter humiliation and isolation, so she was determined that this would not be the rest of her life. She demanded both her dower settlements and compensation for her lost French lands, grants that the new administration in England was reluctant to give in full. They expected her to go back to Angoulême and govern it in the name of her son Henry, but that seemed a little bit servile for her tastes, and so she decided to demonstrate her independence, and she did so by marrying pretty much the most controversial person she could think of. Her daughter, Joanna, had been engaged to Hugh X of Lusignan, the son of the man to whom Isabel had been engaged. The wedding had not yet taken place, though, because Joanna had not reached her majority, being only ten. Do you see where this is going? Yep, incredibly enough, she did to Joanna what John had done to Hugh's father, and stole her daughter's fiancé, the son of the man to whom she had once been engaged. This was pretty goddamn scandalous, and canonically speaking, extremely dodgy. In the eyes of many in the church, she had been effectively married to Hugh's father when they had exchanged their velvet de presenti, 
and so this was nothing short of incest. So why did she do it? Power and money, of course. Matilda, Hugh's mother, had a strong claim to the county of Angoulême, and so Isabel needed a powerful ally in order to defend her claim. Marrying the son of her chief rival would strengthen her claim tremendously. It also finally undid the only positive thing that John had accomplished from marrying her in 1200. The marriage split the county in two between her and the Lusignans. In England, there was outrage at this move, and so Isabel attempted to paint it as a personal sacrifice in order to protect the interests of her son. She outlined her arguments in the letter to Henry III, which I have included in full in the show notes, but I will quote a portion here. This is Isabel talking. Quote, When the Counts of La Marche and Angoulême died, Lord Hugh of Lusignan remained alone and without heir in the region of Poitou, and his friends did not permit our daughter to be married to him, because she is so young, but they counselled him to take a wife from whom he might quickly have heirs, and it was suggested that he take a wife in France. If he had done so, all your land in Poitou and Gascony and ours would have been lost. But we, meaning Isabel, seeing the great danger that might emerge from such a marriage, and your counsellors would give us no counsel in this, took said Hugh Count of La Marche as our lord, and God knows we did this more for your advantage than for ours. Now, of course, this letter was meant for general consumption, not just that of the boy king, but if she hoped that it might calm the Regency government down, she was mistaken. In 1221, her English dower lands were officially confiscated in retaliation for the wedding, but Isabel saw this coming and played her trump card. She threatened to ally with France if she did not get those lands back, and England, far from ready for another encounter with the French, relented and gave her lands back. This was not the end of the story, though, as she had burned far too many bridges. She wrote continually to Henry, demanding more money as well as troops for her various disputes, but to no avail. Her marriage to Hugh, as we will soon see, had its own moments of tumult, much like her first, but it was a very successful one in one respect, children. She eventually eclipsed even Eleanor of Aquitaine in the childbirth department, adding nine children to her brood to join the four that she had had with John. Amazingly for the time, all thirteen survived into adulthood. Of her children with Hugh, five were sons, and these would turn out to be a pain in the butt for Henry III, but more on that in the next episode. Her marriage to Hugh was very different to hers with John in two main respects. First, they were relatively close in age and neither were a child, and second, they were of roughly equal wealth and status. Indeed, if anything, Isabel was richer and more powerful. This meant that Isabel, as again we will soon see, finally had her own personal agency within her marriage. Eventually, in 1224, she did defect to France, whose new king, Louis VIII, the man who had tried to claim the crown of England from John a decade before, accepted Angoulême into his domain, granting Isabel compensation for her lost our lands in England. This meant war with her sons, Henry and Richard, and it seems that, while hardly mother of the century, she was not keen to fight a war against her own children, and after a few years, she fell out with the French. The problem that occurred was that, though Isabel did not like England or the English, she was fond of being their queen. She styled herself as the Dowager Queen of England until the day she died, and got mightily affronted at any perceived slight. This explains what happened next. In 1241, the French king held an oath-swearing ceremony, and seated next to him was his queen, the Countess of Chartres, and her sister. Everyone else was made to stand, including the Dowager Queen of England and Countess of Angoulême. The sister of a countess sits while the queen stands? This was unacceptable to Isabel. Moreover, Hugh then went and swore fealty to Louis's brother Alfonso as Count of Poitou, 
a title that had been promised to Isabel's son, Richard. She went as far as moving all of her stuff from her husband's castle and putting it back in hers in Angoulême, declaring that she would not return unless Hugh switched sides and declared allegiance to England. Hugh, as I said before, while a powerful man, was more or less his wife's equal in terms of territory and wealth, and so could not afford to lose her, and, so meekly, followed her instructions, which was a terrible, terrible, terrible idea. At the Battle of Talibur in 1242, the French crushed the English army, ending their hopes of regaining their lost empire. Hugh and Isabel paid dearly for their disloyalty, having to give up their pensions and forced to pay for French garrisons in her own castles. All her hopes of expanding her county's power and extending that of her son Richard was lost in an afternoon. Isabel was said to have been so furious and distraught that she attempted suicide but failed. She spent the rest of her life in obscurity before dying at the age of around 58 in the Abbey of Fontevraud, the very same place where her mother-in-law, Eleanor of Aquitaine, died. So, how can we sum up Isabel? Much like her mother-in-law, Eleanor of Aquitaine, and sister-in-law, Berengara of Navarre, she really only reached the height of her powers after her husband had died. John took advantage of the fact that she was a child wearing to take her lands and wealth, giving her no opportunity to build up her power base while queen. Unlike Matilda of Boulogne, therefore, she could not be an aide to a militarily incompetent husband in his campaigns against his enemies. She was a productive mother of heirs, but the circumstances of her two marriages made her deeply unpopular with the church and the people, both of whom viewed her largely as a harlot, and possibly an incestuous harlot at that. In many ways, I think she can be compared to Eleanor of Aquitaine in terms of temperament and ambition, certainly in later life, but she did not have her skill, nor did she have the influence over her sons that Eleanor had. Speaking of Eleanor, next week we are going to look at her namesake, Eleanor of Provence, yet another French queen who was no more popular with her people than Isabel had been. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.